afternoon, we will think about the beauty of the Lord. Here's what I want to attempt to do. I want to define specifically what we're talking about when we say the beauty of the Lord. And then I want to relate that summary attribute of God to two or three other summary attributes of God which are very important for understanding the phrase, the beauty of the Lord. This is especially important because that phrase is used once and once only in the Scriptures. And so we need to compare the Scripture to the Scripture that we might have a full understanding of. So first I want to define what we mean by the beauty of the Lord and relate it to other of the summary attributes of the Lord. Secondly, I want to go to Psalm 27, the passage in which that phrase occurs, and look at the context of David's prayer and his expression of longing to see the beauty of the Lord. And I want to draw application of the significance of that. Then I want to move to Romans chapter 11 and correlate the truth of the beauty of the Lord and the glory of the Lord. And then, looking in John 1, I want to apply this truth to our understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. So four things we're going to do today. We'll define the beauty of the Lord and relate it to other attributes, which are summary attributes of God. We'll go to Psalm 27 and we'll see the context of David's prayer, that his expression of desire to see the beauty of the Lord. And we'll apply that to our own circumstances. Then we'll look at Romans chapter 11 and correlate the teaching of Paul on the glory of God with this teaching on the beauty of the Lord, and then we'll see it how this is summed up in Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we glory in who you are. Your beauty is indeed displayed in all creation. You could have made the world functional, but not beautiful. But in your glory and in your goodness and in your self-revelation, you have made it both. Our eyes look around us and sometimes our breath is taken away by the sheer beauty of your creation. Our Heavenly Father, you are beautiful. Triune God, you have revealed yourself in the Word as a God who is altogether lovely. We have seen this beauty in the face of Jesus Christ. As we come now to your Word, to contemplate your character, your nature, again, we ask that by the Holy Spirit you would open our eyes to behold wonderful truth about you in your Word. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The beauty of God is a summary attribute of God. What do I mean by that? The beauty of God is a summary attribute of God in this sense. It is an attribute, it is a characteristic of God revealed by Him and ascribed to Him in Scripture in which all of his excellencies are summed up. When we speak of the beauty of the Lord, we are not 
speaking of simply one component of his character, but we are speaking of all the excellence in his character summed up, compiled, and collated. The beauty of God is closely related to several other summary attributes in Scripture. I want to mention three other summary attributes in Scripture. The beauty of God is correlated with God's perfection. You've been hearing a little bit about God's perfection already in our time together today, especially in R.C.'s address. God's blessedness is related to the beauty of the Lord. And God's glory is related to the beauty of the Lord. Let me take a few moments and explain what I mean. Let's start with God's perfection. God's perfection reminds us that God possesses all excellent qualities and he lacks no quality that would be desirable for him to have. God's perfection reminds us that he possesses all excellent qualities and lacks no quality that would be desirable for him to have. To use the phrase of a famous theologian, he is that than which no greater can be conceived. You cannot think of that which is more perfect than God. And when we speak of the perfection of God, we are speaking of the reality that God possesses all excellent qualities and lacks none of them. Now, it is that reality about God that leads naturally to God's beauty. Precisely because God possesses all excellency in and of himself, He also possesses the quality of desirability. That's why the psalmist can say in Psalm 73, 25, There is nothing upon the earth that I desire beside you. Why? Because he has seen the Lord. And in him all perfections are summed up. It does not get any better than the Lord. And so the psalmist desires him. He sees the excellency of the Lord, the perfection of the Lord, and in that the beauty of the Lord is displayed to him. His desirability is manifest. And so God's perfection reminds us of the excellency of his character. God's beauty reminds us of the desirability of his character. Connected with that is God's blessedness. God is not only said to be blessed because we bless him, because we bless him for who he is and bless him for what he has done for us, and ascribe blessing to him and pronounce blessing on him. But God is blessed also and especially because he is blessed in and of himself. That is, God is possessed of the deepest and profoundest 
state of happiness and contentment and joy that can be conceived. He has the fullness of joy in himself. This is why Paul can call him the blessed God in 1 Timothy 1, 11, and can call him the blessed sovereign in 1 Timothy 6.15. Every once in a while, you will hear preachers say that God had to bring creation into being in order for him to have the fullness of experience of relationship. That is a gross contortion of the biblical truth about God, who is in and of himself blessed he did not need the world in order to be blessed. He did not need the world in order to be filled with joy to the fullest, content in the state of blessedness and deep, profound happiness. His creation of the world, though for his own glory, was not because of his need or lack, but the overflowing of his fullness in the display of his glory. And so we've spoken of God's perfection and said that that leads to God's beauty. And we've said that God's beauty is connected with his blessedness. Because in him is the deepest and profoundest state of happiness and contentment and joy that can be conceived. And again, connected with God's blessedness and beauty and perfection is God's glory. God's glory refers in the scriptures to his abundance. His abundance, his wealth, his honor, his greatness, his weightiness his dignity, and his moral perfection. He is inherently glorious in his nature and person. And that glory is manifested in his presence. And because God's glory, his greatness, his moral perfection, his honor, his weightiness, his wealth, and his abundance, because his glory is manifested in his presence in the Bible, God's glory thus comes to be used to describe the form in which he reveals himself or manifests his presence. For instance, Moses can say in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 24, the Lord has shown us his glory. In our worship, what do we come to do? We come to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength and to give unto the Lord the glory due His name. We do not come to give Him that which is not already His. We do not come to make Him more glorious than He would be otherwise, but to acknowledge the glory that He already is and to give to him the glory due his name. Psalm 29, 1 and 2, and Psalm 96, 7 and 8 both emphasize this. And when we contemplate the perfection of God and the beauty of God and the blessedness of God and the glory of God, 
we're reminded again that we love and worship God not only for what He has done for us, but also, and in connection with that, because of who He is. He is altogether lovely. Now with that, let's turn to Psalm 27 and hear God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. For in the day of trouble He will conceal me in His tabernacle, in the secret place of His tent He will hide me, He will lift me up on a rock And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he write its eternal truth upon our hearts. There are two things I want to point out to you about the words of David in this psalm. The first you'll see in verses 1 through 3, where David shows us how to live life in light of God's greatness. The second you'll see in verses 4 through 6, where David shares with us his spiritual priorities, his singular devotion to the pursuit of the Lord in worship. Now, let me just remind you that Psalms 26, 27, and 28 each touch on the subject of the Lord's house. Psalm 26 considers the sweetness and the right of access to the house of the Lord. And the house of the Lord is, of course, the place where the people of God are gathered to worship. The New Testament says you are the house of the Lord. When you are gathered to worship, you're the house of the Lord. You can be meeting in a barn or in the countryside, or in a beautiful church building. But you, when you are assembled, are the house of the Lord. And each of these psalms are about the house of the Lord. And Psalm 26 considers the sweetness of the house of the Lord and who has the right of access to it. Psalm 27 contemplates the house of the Lord as a place of refuge from enemies. And Psalm 28 meditates on the house of the Lord as a place of prayer. Now, in this psalm, David's contemplation of the house of the Lord comes in the wake of dangers for him personally. David begins the psalm by asking the rhetorical question, Whom shall I fear? And then the second one, Whom shall I dread? He's asking who or what deserves the energy and the focus of his fear. And he goes through five possible answers. Evildoers, he asks. Should I fear them? Should I dread them? 
Adversaries? Should I fear them? Should I dread them? Enemies? Should I fear them? Should I dread them? A host? An army? Should I fear it? Should I dread it? A war? Should I fear it? Should I dread it? And his answers to each of those five questions or the application of those two rhetorical questions applied five times, his answers to each of them is no. I don't need to fear evildoers or adversaries or enemies or a host or a war. Why? David refuses to be dominated by his circumstances because of the fear of God. His affectionate reverence for the living God delivers him from the fear of everything else. And in that he is teaching us a lesson. Christians need fear nothing. Not because of the absence of adversity, but because of the greatness and the glory and the goodness and, yes, the beauty of God. John Witherspoon once said, Only the fear of God can deliver us from the fear of man. I think one of the greatest compliments that was ever uh, paid to John Knox was paid to him by Regent Morton at his funeral when Morton stood over Knox's grave and said, Here lies a man who neither feared nor flattered any flesh. Now that is not because John Knox was a man who was by temperament brave. He tells us in his own writings how fearful he was, but the fear of God had taken him over and enabled him no longer to fear man. The one who does not fear God must fear everything else. But the one who fears God need fear nothing else. And so David meditates. The Lord is my light and my salvation and my defense. He is the truth and goodness and joy and vitality of my life. He is the Savior and Redeemer of my life. He is the protector and defender of my life. And it enables him to overcome the fear that could have been caused to him by his circumstances. What are the fears challenging your life? Are there financial problems? Are you in strange surroundings and you lack friendship and fellowship and companionship and support, support in Christ even, with Christian friends? Are you in an unfamiliar, unhospitable setting? Are there serious relational problems between you and your husband or between you and your wife? Is there a great discouragement that your spouse is facing? Are there fears and uncertainties about your future? We could go on and on. Some of these problems may be quite formidable in your experience. How do you deal with those fears? Positive thinking? Listen to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's speech one more time. There's nothing to fear but fear itself. It's not how David deals with it. David deals with fear by going to God. 
You know, so often we go to the Bible and we ask, what does the Bible have to say about my particular circumstance? What does it have to say to me about this or that? And in the process of thinking that we are being eminently practical, sometimes we mute the Bible in the area that it would be most practical. Because as has been said by wise Christians before me, long before me, the secret of soul-fatting Bible study is to ask the question, what does this passage teach me about my God? And it is to God that David goes in the midst of his fears. And it is in theology proper, the doctrine of God, the nature of God, the character of God that David finds Comfort in the midst of the fears that press around him. And you see this in verses 4 through 6. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. For in the day of trouble He will conceal me. Christians find peace and confidence in the midst of fear when they are single And David is describing for us the one thing that he wants, and it is the one thing that no one can take away from him. One thing I want, one thing I have asked for the Lord, one thing I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. Isn't it interesting? Here's David surround, surrounded by fears. And they're real fears. These aren't false fears. This isn't the fear of a hypochondriac. This isn't the fear of a pessimist. This isn't the fear of someone who's out of his mind. These are real fears. And yet, isn't it interesting that his quest is for God? His quest is not, Oh Lord, save me from my circumstances. And then, then I'll get to know you. Isn't that how we often do? Lord, just get me through this, and then I'll think about you. Then I'll start praying to you. Then I'll start studying your word. Then I'll start growing in grace. Just get me through these circumstances, and then I'll focus on you. And David has it the other way around. Here he is, surrounded by fears, and he says, Now, by the way, there's one thing that I want, and it's not to be delivered from evildoers, adversaries, enemies, a host, or a war. It's to see the beauty of the Lord. That's the one thing that he wants. He wants to worship. That's the one thing that David wants to do. He wants to dwell with the Lord in worship. He wants to behold the Lord in worship. He wants to meditate on the Lord in worship. And so he says, This is the one thing that I seek to behold the beauty of the Lord. Later in this psalm, if you look at verse 13, he says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Where would he see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? In the house of God, with the people of God, hearing the word of God, he would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This man is living to be in worship of the living God. 
and it totally transforms his life. It totally transforms the way that he relates to the greatest challenges of life. David lives in light, his life in light of the greatness of God, and he delights in God and in his worship above all else, and so he knows the blessedness of being a child of God even now in the midst of all his troubles. Now, friends, to long to see the beauty of the Lord is to long to see God in his perfection, in his blessedness, in his glory. And that is what Paul came to see in an entirely different circumstance. Let me ask you to turn forward to Romans chapter 11. And look at the 33rd verse. Let me just say this. If you will remember in this section of Romans, Paul has begun it by confessing a deep, deep problem that he has. He has been burdened of heart for the conversion of his own people. He has desired above all things to see a spiritual revival amongst the Jewish people. He has longed to see the people of God of old, the Jewish people, coming in droves in faith in Jesus, the Messiah. And he has not seen it. And in fact, not unlike Jonah of old, though it is the burden of Paul's heart, and he says in Romans chapter 9 that he would be willing to be eternally damned himself if only his people would come to faith in Christ. He has been sent to the Gentiles as the apostle of faith and grace to them. But he's the anti-Jonah, isn't he? Jonah goes kicking and screaming. Paul's kicking the doors down to go to the Gentiles. But here he is, and he's been contemplating the mystery. Here's this burden of heart. He longs more than anything in life to see a spiritual revival amongst the people of Israel, that they would come to faith in Christ. And what does God show him? He shows him in the Word that their rejection of Christ is for his glory. And you get it in technicolor in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now I want you to remember, my friends, this would not have been easy stuff for Paul. He's writing it down. But it's his heart to see his people converted. And God's answer is, what if I choose this vessel of wrath in order to exalt my mercy on vessels of mercy? And what is Paul's response to that answer from God about the desire of his heart? Here it is. Romans 11, 33 and following. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. 
In other words, the Apostle Paul looks at this scenario, the burden of his heart to see the people of Israel come to faith in Christ. They don't. God shows him his work of predestination and even of reprobation. And what does Paul do? He sings the doxology. Because this is for the glory of God. In other words, in this choice of God, which God has set forth before Paul's eyes, Paul sees God's glory. Paul sees God getting glory for himself. And so all he can do is sing the doxology. Lord, your ways are not my ways. Were we just talking about the unpredictability of God? Now here's the great Apostle Paul praying for the mass conversion of Israel. And God's answer of election and reprobation is the answer that he gets. And what does he do? Lord, your ways are not our ways. Your wisdom is past finding out. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. We can't understand your ways, O oh God. And so, you be the glory, for from you and through you and to you are all things. This world doesn't revolve around Paul and his wishes, however sanctified they may be. This world is from and through and to the Almighty God. And so Paul sings the doxology. And did you notice in verse 35 he quotes... From Job 41:11, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And he alludes to 1 Chronicles 29:14. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you and from your hand we have given you. The point is this. No one can claim that God owes them something. It all belongs to him. What we have, we have on loan from Him. No one can say, God, you owe me. He owes us nothing. He's the sole proprietor of the world. And so Paul makes it clear that all things come from God in verse 36, that all things come through God and that all things belong to God. And the realization that God is the source and the agent and the owner of everything evokes praise from Paul. You know, the little children's catechism, some of you have memorized it, asks the question, why did God make you and all things? And it answers it in three little words. For His glory. For His own glory. That's why God has made you and all things, and you can't get more basic and practical than that. Because God is the fountain and agent and goal of all things. All things serve His glory and the display of His glory. And God's beauty is seen in the display of His glory. And do you see how Paul counts even this inscrutable providence of the people of Israel not coming to Christ as a display of God's glory? It's fairly surprising, isn't it? 
especially in light of the promises and the consolations set forth in the Old Testament to the people of God, to Israel, to whom the covenants and the promises were given. Yet they end up rejecting them, and the Gentiles embrace them. And Paul says, when I see that, you know what I see? Paul doesn't see something to question God about. Why are you doing this? He sees this as something to praise God for. Why? Because God's glory is displayed, His beauty is displayed in the revelation of His inscrutable will. But my friends, it is especially in Jesus Christ that we see the glory of of God displayed and the beauty of God displayed par excellence. Let me ask you to turn back to the book of Isaiah. And look at Isaiah 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. It was not the physical appearance of the Savior that would attract the world to him. It was another beauty. What was that beauty? Well, it begins to be described in Isaiah 53, doesn't it? Turn forward to Philippians chapter 2. Here, Paul describes something of the beauty which attracts us to the Savior. Philippians 2.5 Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross Therefore also God highly exalted and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. How is the glory of the Son displayed? In his incarnation, his humiliation, his crucifixion. You remember what John says in John chapter 1? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son of God. And so the glory of God is displayed in the humiliation of the Savior, in His incarnation, in His life, in His ministry, in His sufferings, and finally in His death. You know, I think one of the great testimonies to the deity of Christ in all of Scripture is found in James 1.1. You want to turn with me there? In James 1.1... The man who was the half-brother of Jesus opens his book by calling himself first a bond 
servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, friends, James probably slept in the same bed with Jesus growing up. And yet he calls his half-brother the Lord Jesus the Messiah, who is my master, and I am his servant. Any brothers relate to one another like that out there? Do you know of? Here's Jesus' brother who knew him when he was a boy, saying, let me tell you a little bit about my master. He's the Lord. He's Jesus. He's the Messiah. That's who my brother is. But James isn't finished because if you look at James 2.1, he says this. My brethren, do not hold your faith in the Lord Jesus, the glory, with an attitude of personal favoritism. Do you see what he just called Jesus? He called him the glory. Because in him he had seen the glory and the beauty and the perfection and the blessedness of God in his life in his sufferings, in his humiliation, and in his death. God has displayed his glory in that though he is infinitely perfect and majestic and dignified and full of joy and blessedness and contentment, he has entered into our experience taken upon himself our flesh and blood, suffered and died to redeem us from destruction, and in so doing he has displayed his glory. And that beauty of the glory of God displayed in Jesus Christ draws us to him. We cannot help but praise fairest Lord Jesus, who was not fair to look upon, but he was fair in who he was and in what he has done for us. May the Lord bless his word. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we don't have the slightest idea of what we're saying when we say fairest Lord Jesus. He is fairer than our conception can comprehend. And yet in his incarnation and in his atonement and in his resurrection, he has shown us the Father. The Father of glory to the point that his disciples and all those who love and worship him can say of him, he is Jesus, the glory. And he is beautiful. We see your beauty in him. And your beauty leads us to say this. One thing we have desired of the Lord. 
that we might dwell in the house of the Lord forever and see the beauty of the Lord. And you have told us that we will see him face to face. And when we see him, we will be made like him. And we shall know him as he is. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. We will not gaze at glory, but on our King of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory and beauty of Emmanuel's Lamb. Receive the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.